Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. If you're here for the first time, we are grateful that you've shared the first Sunday in 2015 with us. Hope and pray that it's a um, that you're made to feel warm. Welcome. Uh, that you are equipped in some way. Uh, we are definitely not the only church in town that is unpacking God's word week by week, and I don't believe we're the only church in town that is walking in what we're hearing. So. Um, there are some great options here in Greenville, and every Sunday we pray for these other churches in Greenville because we're all on the same team. So if you don't land here and you're visiting with us this morning, if you land somewhere else, Godspeed, and we hope and pray for the best for you and for the church family you may be part of. Should you end up here, we encourage you to walk with us for a period of time to try and get a sense of who we are, to try and get a sense of what you're hearing, what this people is like. Uh, but as far as your maybe your first visit this morning, we're glad you're here. Um, I'm going to begin with prayer. We're going to pray for another church. I'm also going to pray. I told Scott, I was kind of laughing about this this morning. I've been laughing about it a good bit in the last couple of weeks. The last time I was in the pulpit was the second Sunday in December. And I don't know, some of you may have seen that video of um, Miss Teen, South Carolina, from years ago. That's what I felt like the last time I was in the pulpit. So I'm a little bit shell-shocked this morning. Some of you are going to be pulling that up on your phone. And we'll hear it if you do that. So don't do that. Wait till afterward. But that's what I felt like the last time I was in the pulpit. So I'm going to pray about that and just pray that all that, all that angst will be uh, set aside and that we can just dig in. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful opportunity we have to spend together in your word these next few minutes. God, we are thankful. Uh, we want to have, um, we want to offer up to you a few things first before we pray about how we spend these next few minutes. I want to pray first for another church and another pastor and his wife in our community. I want to pray for Steve and Karen Lawson and for Grace Community Church. Lord, I'm thankful for a friendship and relationship with Steve that is so, um, I guess, consistent that I would expect that he likely has or could pray for us on a given Sunday morning, that he wants your kingdom to be advanced through your church, period, not necessarily just through his church. I pray for that spirit in our church and every other church in our community that you would put to death a spirit of competition and that we would cheer for each other and want great things in and through these other ministries for your namesake, for the advancement of the kingdom, advancement of the gospel in our community. God, I pray for Steve and Karen too, for first of all, for his worship, knowing the, the potential for this just to become a job and to just get it done week after week. I pray that you would fuel him with the only fuel that, that really sustains, that he would be fixed on considering and enjoying Christ, that that would fuel his studies, that that would fuel the kind of husband that he is, the kind of father that he is. And Lord, I pray that that would just spill over onto a ministry. I pray for Karen, that you would guard her from... Um, hunkering down and being in protection mode as a, a pastor's wife and just uh, knowing the highs and lows of walking with people and being a people, a person herself. I just know the temptations there and I pray that you would guard her from that, that she would be uh, responsive, attentive, attentive, open, eager to engage your people and uh, that she would enjoy her husband as the church enjoys Christ. God, I pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I pray first for at least the mouthpiece this morning, praying jealously for your message, not for my reputation. In fact, I want to just put to death that this, this moment, Lord. I pray that you would 
if necessary, to make a fool of me to make much of you, I pray that you would do that, that you would speak through, through me this morning in a way that hearts will hear, that people will be equipped, that this year will be um, in, inaugurated and initiated with a potent, powerful message uh, to walk in. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond anything that any of us could muster, but that is spirit-fueled, spirit-equipped. We turn this time over to you, Lord, and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I don't have a lot of satellites for you this morning. In fact, the only satellite I have for you is in the supper, and you don't even necessarily have to turn there. It'll be a familiar passage. So our home base this morning is Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to share some context. And then the plan for the morning is to show you four things that come out of this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at really the first three verses this morning. We'll be looking at these verses this Sunday and next Sunday. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us with endurance, or run with endurance, the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Some context for Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews as a church for the last two or three years at this point. I, I don't know exactly how long it's been, but we've done some hard work up to this point, getting to chapter 12. Um, Hebrews is a long sermon. If you think that my sermons can get lengthy sometimes, consider this as one sermon from a Hebrews preacher to his church. He, for some reason, is not with them. We don't know where he is when he's writing this sermon, but we believe from the sort of the clues in the book that he's writing this sermon to his church that appears to be, as the title of the book is called, Hebrews, a largely, if not completely, Jewish Christian church. We also believe from the clues that it's likely, this church is likely, in Rome. One of the problems that's going on in this church, this is what we would call an occasional letter. He's writing this sermon for a purpose that what seems to be going on in this Hebrew church is that they are considering bailing on Christianity because Christianity is hard. There's nothing new under the sun, but it was, it's hard now, but it was especially hard then under the thumb of the Roman Empire if, in fact, this church was in Rome. And it's fact so hard that they're considering bailing on Christianity and going back to good old faithful easy fallback of Judaism. Likely many of these people were shunned by their family members, were maybe left without jobs, became, became outcasts if they were Jews converted to Christianity. So falling back to Judaism would be easy. It's a known experience. It's a known religion, a known faith, and you're likely falling back into the loving embrace of your family who shunned you. So here this pastor is encouraging them, don't bail on Jesus. Over the previous chapters, what he's doing, first of all, is he's comparing Jesus with some things that Judaism held dear. Angels. The first, one of the first comparisons in the chapter is comparing Jesus with angels. And the point is he's making is Jesus is way better than angels. Later he says Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. 
And the largest kind or the largest text there in the book so far has been this development of Jesus as the ultimate, supreme, superior high priest. And what he's developed so far that really is really worth enjoying for them and for us, especially those who might be considering going back to Judaism, is that the sacrificial system has been fulfilled, completed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he is the ultimate priest making the ultimate offering of himself. So going back to Judaism would literally be trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. That's what the book could be summarized as so far. In chapter 10, there's a nice passage that sort of summarizes his encouragement up to this point. In chapter 10, beginning in verse, I told you I wasn't going to have any satellites. This isn't a significant satellite. In chapter 10, he develops, after exposing Christ as high priest, some really important let us's. I remember the Sundays that we preached these. It was Easter Sunday and the Sunday before. If you want to go back and listen to what I would consider to be two of the most important sermons that I've ever had the privilege of preaching, let us hold fast, let us draw near, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Because Christ is so superior, because he is the ultimate high priest, let us do these things. Draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And he ends this chapter with the encouragement in verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Don't bail on this Jesus. Draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then the whole chapter 11 is dedicated to examples. Faithful examples. We spent the entire summer considering not every single one of these examples, but most of them. We left some for the families to consider on the family level over the course of 2015. But example after example of the faithful, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, even the nation of Israel, Rahab, Gideon, these people became close friends for us, of us, over the course of the summer. And what we saw in them almost universally is ordinary people, and oftentimes ordinary moments doing extraordinary things with their faith, trusting Christ and being faithful. We left the leftovers of those chapters for you as families, and we encourage you to pick up where we left off. It's Samson was where we left off. But here in chapter 12 is where he resumes his encouragement not to bail on Jesus. These first three verses, I've already read them. I want to point out some important furniture in these three verses that will be useful over the course of our morning. A few important words. If you're an underliner or a note taker, you can underline or note these words. First of all, therefore. Therefores are throughout our Bible. We should pay attention to them because they tie together what's before the word and what's after the word. But what's unique about this word, therefore, is the word actually is the word consequently. It's only used in one other place in our Bible, in 1 Thessalonians. It's stronger than a therefore. In many ways, what it's doing is is connecting chapter 11 and the faithfulness that he's calling them to as the only appropriate consequence of the faithfulness of the heroes of chapter 11. It means what he's about to say in these first three verses that we read this morning is a consequence of what he said in chapter 11. It must be said. What we're considering today must be considered in light 
of chapter 11. I was thinking about it like this. It's the delicious, warm cake that's just come out of the oven that's the product of the time spent and the ingredients poured into chapter 11. We get to eat some cake this morning. Nice, warm cake. The next thing I want to call your attention to is the cloud of witnesses. I want you to envision and just imagine for a moment an amphitheater, an ancient amphitheater. It's not quite around, but it's close. Some of them may have actually been rounds, like the Colosseum, all the way around. But many of the ancient amphitheaters were not quite around, but you may have felt surrounded. The stage, if you were, is down at the bottom of the seating that goes way up all the way around you. Just imagine an amphitheater full of spectators. And these spectators are the the heroes of the faith. And they're not only the heroes of the faith, they're the heroes in your story. Maybe it's a grandparent that trusted Christ against all odds. Maybe it's parents that trusted Christ and led you to do the same. Maybe it's a son that was taken home far too soon that trusted Christ to his last moments. Imagine the stands and the stadium and the amphitheater full of the faithful. That's what I want you to imagine here. Some of that is going on here as they are witnessing what's going down, what's going on down there on the field or on the stage. But more than anything, what these guys are and these ladies are in these stands, they are witnesses to the faithfulness of Christ. But the stands are full. We're going to come back to that later. The amphitheater is full. A cloud of witnesses, faithful witnesses, surrounds us. The next thing I want to call your attention to is the let us's. The let us's, the three let us's of chapter 10 are treasures. For me. That Easter Sunday and the Sunday before, man, those were really wonderful, appropriate, fitting responses to Christ as high priest. But here we have a couple of brand new let us's. Two new let us's that we're going to consider this morning. Let us lay aside heavy stuff and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The next thing I want you to see is the consider him. Over the course of the book, there are these things in Greek that are called indicatives. An indicative is something that's just showing you something. You would, if, it's fitting if you think about where we've gone in Hebrews so far. Mostly what we've seen in Hebrews is the Hebrews preacher showing the Hebrews church how great Jesus is. So we've had these indicatives. Now for the rest of the book, if you want to consider how this book changes or how this sermon changes, it moves from indicatives primarily to imperatives over the course of the rest of the book. An imperative would be what you imagine an imperative to be when someone says, this is imperative that you get this. An imperative in Greek is like a command. And here in these three verses, we have a command. The Hebrews church has a command. And if we believe that the word is appropriate and fitting and applicable to us, and there's a command for us here, and that command is, consider him. So, so far, I want to just give you sort of my version of what's going on in this passage. This is what, what I'm calling the Pastor Ben's International Version, the PBIV. It doesn't use redneck, redneck, redneck language or anything like that. It's just my version of what I think is being said here in these three verses. In light of a crowd of faithful witnesses, let's work on being light and nimble And let's run to the finish line with eyes fixed on and considering Jesus. That's Ben's summary of what's going on in this passage. Now, 
four things I want to show you. First is obvious, but it's not really obvious. And then the other three have to do with how we run. The first is the point that we are in an endurance foot race. The Hebrews preacher is reminding the Hebrews people of that, and it's fitting for us to remember this as well. We are in an endurance foot race. This is well established in our Bibles. I didn't realize the number of times that racing or language that has to do with a foot race is used in our New Testaments. Here's a sampling. Jesus even uses it. In Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. The word strive means to contend for a prize. Some of these race-connected sort of words are hidden for us in the Greek, but we can draw them out. Here's an example that's not hidden at all. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly, he goes on to say. There's no hidden connection to running a race in there. That's pretty obvious. But Galatians 2.2, I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul considers his own ministry like a running race. The book of Philippians is full of examples. Here are just a few. I wonder if the, the Philippian church may have not been like... Um, Cincinnati is to baseball or something, or Boston is to baseball, or, you know, my, my, my vast experience with sports, I really have a lot to draw on there, but, but I'm reading the, the examples that he uses in Philippians, and apparently these were sports fans, because the language is throughout. For, Philippians verse, chapter 1, verse 29, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict That word there is contest that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The language of contest. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's talking about how you live in your faith. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The language of a foot race. And here's one in chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This language of a foot race is throughout our Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And lastly, Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
If you're looking for it in our New Testaments, you're going to realize that our Bibles are saturated, New Testaments especially, with the imagery of a foot race. It's not a javelin throw. It's not a shot put. It's not a long jump. It's not a hammer throw. It's not a sprint. It's not even the hurdles. If you want to know what the journey of faith looks like, you need to go to the cross-country course. Or you need to go to the marathon course in Dallas and watch it weave all over town, looking like it's never going to end. That's the better picture of what the journey of faith looks like. A long foot race that starts when you trust Christ and ends at your final breath. That's what the journey of faith is like. Thankfully, there's no picture developed in our Bibles that we ever compete against each other. Isn't that good to know? We don't have to outfaith one another. I'm encouraged in that because I'm well beaten, if that's the case, by most, if not all of you. There's no picture of racing against one another. This is more about a bunch of people racing for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the carrot at the finish line. The question I want to ask before we continue and talk about how we're to run the race is, do you realize you're in a foot race? Do you realize you're in a course that has been mapped out for you that involves forward movement and sustained effort? Think about that for a minute. Do you realize that's what the journey of faith is? It involves forward movement and sustained effort. You're supposed to be advancing and conquering hills and cruising through valleys and hurdling obstacles. It's part and parcel to faith. It's what the journey is supposed to be like. And it plays out on ordinary streets of a Tuesday evening in your kitchen with your family. It plays out on the ordinary street of a Wednesday night. Well, you're thinking, what are we going to do tonight? And we consider, man, maybe we'll go together and gather around God's word with his people and study. It plays out on the streets of an ordinary Sunday morning like this one, just an ordinary meal that we t- take together as a church family the first Sunday in January. It's played out in ordinary moments. You're in a foot race. I had in my notes, and I just don't have the guts to do it right now, it's just a shout, surprise. But just imagine if I did that. I don't know why. I just feel self-conscious about that. (laughs) The gun has gone off. You're in the race right now. Imagine if someone pointed out to you, you're in a race and you didn't realize it. You're wearing street clothes and your dress shoes. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. And you look around and everybody's running. That's what I want you to see this morning is you're in a foot race right now. The gun went off when you started trusting Christ. You're in the throes of it. Now that we've established that we're in a race, let's consider some racing lessons from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Three of them. First, we are to run with others in view. We are to run with others in view. Let's look at this first verse again, just so we have a good handle on it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. 
Consequently, remember that word means. Consequently, since we're surrounded with an amphitheater full of witnesses, let us lay aside heavy stuff and let us run with endurance. Our faithful movement, I want you to understand, is consequential to theirs. It's fitting. It's an appropriate consequence of their faithfulness. What I want you to consider right now is do you know their stories well enough for it to be a consequence in how you move? Man, I had to ask myself that question after we spent a summer considering each of these people one at a time. We didn't even do Hebrews 11 in one Sunday. We did one at a time. I think we only hit Abel and Enoch both on the same Sunday. Everybody else had one Sunday per person. And I'm asking myself the question, do I make a beeline to these heroes as, so that I will have faithful movement as a consequence of theirs? When things aren't looking right for me and things aren't playing out the way I think God is indicated that they should be, do I make a beeline to Abraham, a guy that models trusting Christ, when, trusting God when things aren't unfolding the way God has promised? Do I make a beeline to Noah when I'm endeavoring to do something that seems like it's completely novel and even maybe completely ridiculous? Do I make a beeline to Rahab when I'm scared to death? Do I make a beeline to Moses when people are difficult? And will I instead run from them and hide from them? Will I instead mediate for them? Man, do I make a beeline to those heroes so that my movement will be faithful? I'm supposed to. Consequently, I'm supposed to. They are our Gatorade. They are our power bars as we continue this race. We grab those guys. We know those ladies. We know these people. And we use, the, use their stories in our homes with our children. We remind each other of their stories because they're fuel for us. And our faithfulness will be a consequence of theirs. We're surrounded by a host of them, and it should embolden us and encourage us. Years ago, when I was in high school, I went to Alexandria Senior High School in Alexandria, Louisiana, and a fitting name for the school. And like a lot of high schools, the track was open at night. I went through high school playing center on the football team, and my goal in life was to be as strong and big as possible. And I, so I ate a lot, and I lifted weights, you know, I did football and stuff like that. But my senior year, I was like, man, after I finished the football season, I'm like, all right, I got to get, something's got to change. I was about 240 pounds. I'm like, something's got to change. And I went out to the, the track about 10 o'clock at night. I didn't want to go turn the daytime where anybody could see me. So I went out there at night, 10 o'clock at night. And like most high school tracks, they're open. You know, you can get in. They're accessible. At least they were in that day. I don't know that they are now due to vandals. But I could get in, and I went for a run. And my run didn't last long, but it was pretty easy because nobody was there. There was no cloud of witnesses to spur me on. There was no cloud of witnesses that held me accountable to this first pitiful run. I want to ask you to consider how would you run a race if it was just you on the track at 10 o'clock at night by yourself? Are you going to push yourself the way you would if the stands were full? Are you going to press on in a way that you would had witnesses been there? Think about a 5K or a 10K or a marathon. Some of you have endeavored to take on something like that. If you do something like that and your family is there watching, how are you going to run? 
Dads, let me just ask you this question. What kind of man are you if you're running by or you feel like stopping and walking, but you see your family sitting up there waiting for you as you come by? You're going to pick up the pace. You're not going to walk because the stands influence you. Who's there witnessing and watching influences how you move. You're not going to slack off. You're going to push the envelope. You're not going to walk by your family members. Consider the stands full and cheering for you. That's the way you should be running with the stands in view and the cloud of witnesses in view. Those who finish the race well. Running with others in view is being mindful of the faithful heroes, but that's not all. Running with others in view also means being mindful of those who are on the track with you. If you're running by yourself, there'll be a stronger temptation to bail out. But if you realize that you're running with other people, there'll be some strength in that. And this passage gives you that clue. It says, let us run with endurance. It doesn't say you by yourself get out and run this race. It says, let us run with endurance. Just like the let us is in chapter 10. It is a us thing. You can't run by yourself. Try it and see how well that goes. You run with others in view, the stands and those on the track and the course with you. If you realize you're surrounded by others who are contending for the same prize, then you'll be more encouraged to continue. And thankfully, that prize isn't just for the winner. The prize is for everyone who finishes, and that will change your approach to encouragement. As you're running the race, you're going to turn to the buddy next to you and say, man, let's do it. Let's press on. Whoever finishes gets it. Once we get there, we receive that prize. Don't quit. See, look, there's Moses. Hang in there, Bill. Look, there's Abraham. Hang in there, Sally. There's Rahab. Susan, don't be afraid. Don't quit. There's a prize. So fine at the finish. It'll be worth the toil and the struggle now. That's what encouragement sounds like as we're down on the track together. Realizing that we're running with others in view, we have a whole new strength. I can't imagine running by myself. I can't imagine running this race without recognizing the stands are full of those who've run before you and the course is full of those who are running with you. The second thing to see from this passage is that we are to run unencumbered. The first is we run with others in view. The second thing is that we are to run unencumbered. Look at that verse 1 again. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Two things I want to look out here. The first thing is laying aside every weight. And that next phrase, and sin that, seems, that clings so closely, seems to indicate we may be talking about two different things. Some of my commentators think so. If that's true, this first thing is what we're talking about there is unnecessary weight. We're talking about lay aside every weight that's just not necessary. Imagine for a moment a shot putter doesn't make a very good marathoner. A shot putter is really good at what he does, he or she does. I know Holly Walker, I think, would, would attest to the fact that Shot putters have some serious strength, some serious power, some serious ability to get one big heavy thing in the air and down the field, but they don't make good marathoners because they're carrying around a bunch of unnecessary muscle. Think about that for a minute as we consider what's being encouraged here. Lay aside every weight. 
There's nothing in the world wrong with carrying around some extra muscle, but if it doesn't contribute to the running of the race, it should be jettisoned. F.F. Bruce, one of my favorite commentators, said this, There are many things which may be perfectly all right in their own way, but which hinder a competitor in the race of faith. They are weights which must be laid aside. It may well be that what is a hindrance to one entrant in this spiritual contest is not a hindrance to another. I'd like to call these weights, these unnecessary weights, distracting weights. Because we're distinguishing between these weights and the sinful weights. We're talking about distracting weights that just make running hard. Are there some things in your life that are just not necessarily sinful, but they can be just plain distracting and they might be unnecessary? While they're not outright sin, they're just heavy and clunky and they make running hard? I had to ask this question. I had a week's advance looking at this, studying this this week, but my advance study... I'm asking myself this question, and I'm looking at my life realizing there's some freedoms that I enjoy that make my running clunky, frankly. Some freedoms that I enjoy that aren't sinful, I don't believe, but that I can very easily run to that makes my running of faith clunky and heavy. A freedom that can easily be taken too far to the point of a requirement for an enjoyable evening out. Some of you might know exactly what I'm talking about. Man, running light means putting these things in a place that they should be. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's something that in and of itself is perfectly fine, like a big muscular body, but it makes running hard. Maybe it's a hobby or some sort of recreation that's taken too far. You've got to know if you get into horse racing or whatever else it might be, you know, basketball dunking or whatever, I, I don't know, I'm thinking of whatever hobbies we might get into, that there's an audible sucking sound when you get in that hobby of people that have made a God of that that don't even know Jesus. You'll be, if you get into such thing, know that you will be surrounded by people who their whole life has become that, and they're probably really good at it. Man I, man, I can tell you right now, cycling is a big thing that I enjoy. There are dudes out right now that are training right now that don't even know Jesus. And while they're training, they're getting faster than me. <laughs> but if I were to pour myself into that, I need to know and be prepared. Is there anything wrong with cycling? No. But man, it can be taken too far and it can become clunky and make the running of faith hard. You don't have to necessarily bail on the thing altogether, but you have to keep it in perspective and realize we're running the race and we're supposed to be traveling light. Maybe it's literally extra weight. New Year's Day, or New Year, first Sunday in New Year's, so we're going to be honest. I had a couple surgeries in October, unrelated surgeries. They were just things I needed to do. I'd met my deductible, so I'm like, let's, let's get an overall here. And had a couple surgical procedures that I need to have done. And since those surgeries, I've gained 11 pounds. I had the come to Jesus meeting with my doctor this week. I'm like, 11 pounds? And I don't know about you, but my body weight is tied to my spiritual disposition. It is. And I would be Gnostic to think otherwise. You remember the Gnostics separated the physical from the spiritual and said, ah, they're completely unrelated. 
but we're not going to think gnostically. We're going to realize that, for me at least, that's a hindrance for me. It may not be for some of you. It is a hindrance for me if I'm carrying around a bunch of extra, extra body weight. These things are intertwined for me, and it slows my run down, my faith run, not just my physical run. Things that functionally weigh you down and keep you from running light and nimble. That's what I'm talking about right now. Not sinful stuff. Is 11 pounds of extra weight sinful? Absolutely not. I hope not. Is a hobby that you really pour yourself into sinful? No, absolutely not. Is a freedom that you enjoy sinful? Absolutely not. But you need to ask yourself the question, is it holding down your faith advance? Is it keeping you from running light and nimble Does it influence the decisions you make on what you're going to do and who you're going to hang out with on a weekend night? Do they enjoy the same freedoms or not? Well, we can't hang out with them because I want to enjoy my freedoms. Man, that clunky stuff surrounds us. These weights are going to be different for different people, and they may even be different for you from year to year. That might change from year to year within person. But I ask yourself the question, and I want you all to consider this as families. Are there some distracting things in your lives that are just unnecessary? Things that weigh you down and make you clunky, things you need to lay aside. Now let's talk about those sinful weights. The sin which clings so closely is the phrase that's used there. This clings so closely phrase can also be translated the sin which so easily entangles us. That's what New American Standard says. The sin which so easily entangles us. Young's literal says that it's closely besetting sin. The word involves something that encircles you and wraps you up like a sling throne. There's a, something called a bola that the Incan warriors used to use. This thing that they would throw that would wrap around people's legs and make them fall down. All of us have some of those besetting things that trip us up, that encircle us. And the Hebrews preacher is calling his people to lay aside each of those things. In fact, every one is what he says. Every one of those things. Lay them aside, those besetting things that easily entangles us. They will always be there. And the worst thing you can ever do is put a check in the block. Say, that's not an issue for me anymore for each of your besetting sins, whatever they might be. Put a check in the block and see how quickly it creeps back up. But if you wisely say, all right, I want to put that sin to death, and you wisely say, Lord, help me grow in self-control so that I will not fall to that again, it will always be there lurking under the surface. And they're different for different people in different measures. All of us have these things, but realize that part of the race is laying those things aside. It's part of the running. It goes with the race. Romans 8, 12 says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Starting the year off fittingly, appropriately, talking about putting sin to death in 2015. Popular message? Probably not. I don't really care. What a great start to your year. Putting some sin to death. Man, as we're talking about clunky things, you might not have thought of any clunky things, but I bet you thought of some sin things that you can lay aside this year. Some things that you may medicate with in a way that's sinful. Things that you may run to. Things that you may hide from people. 
if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Can we for a moment let that passage speak at the volume that it should be heard? As a bunch of reformed, Christ-trusting people, we have the temptation to look at a passage like this and only give it a whisper. And then let those passages that talk about assurance of faith shout or even scream. Don't let that happen. Let them all be at the volume that they should be. And this passage says, if you continue to live in the flesh, you will die. So talking about putting some sin to death in the beginning of 2015, man, let's talk about it. Let's be honest about it. The Hebrews preacher says this is part and parcel to continuing. In other words, you won't continue if you're not putting it to death. I love what takes place here. If by the Spirit you put to death. So the Spirit's involved in that. In fact, he's the one doing it as the means of effort and the means of decision and the means of engaging are part of that. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says that for the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is for those things. Man, I'm, I'm just going to say this is a fitting start to our year to talk about sin and talk about holiness and talk about living in a manner worthy of the gospel. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If we're not going to consider here in this passage that there are heavy sinful things in every one of your lives that we are to together put to death, then we are remiss and faithless. Because these things, I'm going to promise you, they will trip you up. These things will ruin marriages. Some of you can attest to that. Some of you may be in the throes of that. Some of you are on the cusp of it. You don't know it because you hadn't been found out yet. Those besetting sins that are eating your lunch, they'll rob your joy. They're going to hinder your relationships. They will literally derail you and put you on the ground like a bolo or bolo, whatever that's called. On the ground and on your face. But man, I've got good news for you. One of the things I enjoy from this passage is the goods are here. It's not just a passage that says stop those things. The goods are here in the third point we're going to consider. But also in the rest of the second point, it says let us lay aside and let us run with endurance. You want some help with some of those besetting sins that you're wrestling with? Or maybe even some of the heavy weights? Realize the help is sitting to your right and to your left and to your front and to your back. This room full is full of help. Let us lay aside. It doesn't say you lay aside. I don't even know that you can ever lay anything aside by yourself. I mean, let's talk about body weight for a minute. If I kept weight loss, my weight loss plans a secret, how good do you think that would go? It'd be like running on the track at Alexander Senior High School at 10 p.m. Who cares if I quit? Who even knows if I bail? But then if I go public and I invite some let us's into those endeavors, man, then I'm, I got a host of witnesses that are watching me. Every time I go over to your house, like, can you eat that? You're like, will you shut up? <laughs> man, I'm being serious. Think about it. When you invite other people into your, your heavy weights that you need to set aside, you invite in accountability, but you also invite in a bunch of cheerleaders. A bunch of dudes that might be saying, hey, man, I need the same. I'm on, I'm on the same part of the course. I need the same kind of help. 
I'll be your teammate in this, and we'll together do this. The let us's are part of the clue to how to deal with these heavyweights. Let us lay aside. Let us run with endurance. I don't do a good job of laying aside things alone. In fact, I don't know if I ever do. We need each other to be part of the work of unencumbering. I didn't think that was a word. I thought I made it up because word, put the little red line underneath it, but turns out it actually is a word. And that's the, a part that we play in each other's lives. That's part of the let us's. Unencumbering. I need you to help me unencumber. And you need me. We need each other. And we have a wealth in each other. Involving others in it will give you a strength to see it through that you may have never had as you kept it quiet at 10 p.m. on Alexandria Senior High track. The third thing. The first is run with others in view. The second is to run unencumbered. And the third thing is to run looking to and considering Jesus. You want the real goods for laying aside heavy weight? both just unnecessary distracting weight and sinful weight, you want the real goods to finishing the race, this is the only thing that will do. This is the ultimate thing. Running to and considering Jesus. Let us lay aside heavy stuff, is what he calls them to. Let us run with endurance, looking, present tense, to Jesus. And remember the imperative of this passage, the command, consider him. That word there, consider, is, involves a process of comparison and reflection. If we took that word and coupled it with looking, we would realize that what we're talking about is a present tense thing that you'd never grow out of. A thing that looking to Jesus as you run the race, if you ever get to the point where you think, I got this Jesus thing down, now can you help me with the rest of this stuff? Then you've set aside the thing you're supposed to be looking to as you run. The only thing that will truly give you endurance. Here's how important it is. Look at the language here. Here's how important looking to Christ is to your race. Look how it reads in verse 1. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. Let us lay aside, let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus. And then in verse 3, consider him so that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. Realize all of this thing comes together in considering and looking to Christ. This little phrase here. So that, I, I can't remember how it even speaks, how it even reads. Chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that. Yeah, it's just straight up so that. If you have a Bible that renders it something else, then I would get a different Bible. That's a henna clause. That's a purpose clause. When you see a so that, there's likely a Greek word behind it. It's called, the word is henna. And it's in order that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. Consider him Look to him, present tense, in order that you won't grow weary and faint-hearted. This is the ultimate fuel for the race. If the host of witnesses and the stands that are full is the Gatorade and the power bar or whatever, the ultimate fuel that keeps you going for the distance of the lifelong race is the consideration of Jesus, period. 
Man, so often I have people come to me saying, man, I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing that, I'm experiencing this. And I say, well, how do you feel about Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? How are you enjoying Jesus? How did you see Jesus in the sermon Sunday? And oftentimes I get a thousand-yard stare. You stop looking at Jesus, of course things are going to get hard. Maybe you've gotten distracted by something. Maybe there's some weight that's so heavy you've stopped running and you're not even looking to Jesus anymore. The answer is to look to Jesus. And we can look at a lot of it, a lot of different things. I was just thinking about some of the things we might look at horizontally. If you're looking for the approval of man, you're not going to finish the race. Let me make you that promise. If in your faith you're just looking for the approval of man, you're not going to finish the race. If I entered the ministry, for example, I'll just make it personal for me. I'm kind of personalizing this. If I entered the ministry and preaching particularly because I enjoyed the approval of man, that's not going to last. Because there'll be a seasons where you hear crickets. And there might even be seasons where you hear strong criticism. But whatever the case, even over time, even if you hear praise or encouragement, it has less effect on you over time. You're like, I, I mean, I appreciate that, but I, I don't, I, that, that doesn't feel, it's not the wind underneath my wings like it used to be early in the ministry. I mean, early in the ministry, Brad Cardwell was on the phone with me every Sunday afternoon picking me up because he was the wind beneath my wings. And I needed you then, and I'm thankful for it. That's not criticism. There were times where you need that. But realize, man, it will not deliver. If your fuel is not Christ and your target is not Christ, these other things are going to end and fade away. If you are about this faith thing for the approval of man, that's going to run out. If you're serving as a deacon or an elder for man's approval, that approval will be less and less nourishing. It might still come. You might still people say, thank you for that. But it will be less and less satisfying, less and less nourishing. And that's why deacons and elders and shepherds in each of your families have to be fueled by Jesus. Because shepherds, here's some bad news for you. Your family will not write songs about you and do cheers for you because you are leading your family in home Bible study. So if you're doing it for the approval of your family, even your wife, it's going to become sort of common and routine. And that's okay because you need to be fueled by something else. You need to have your eyes fixed on considering Jesus because that's the only fuel that's going to see you through to the finish of the race. We can fix our eyes on lots of things and they just don't deliver. Now, fatigue and faintheartedness in faith is not uncommon. This was in some weird way sort of encouraging for me to realize because I get fainthearted at times and I experience fatigue in my ministry here in my ministry, even at home at times. I, I, I mean, we're talking about fatigue and faith matters. We're not just talking about fatigue at work, although hopefully your work involves faith. Hopefully your faith has saturated your work context. But we're not talking about fatigue and selling a widget. Nothing wrong with a widget. Not, not knocking that at all. We're talking about faith endeavors. When you experience weariness, and faint-heartedness, you're not experiencing something new. This encouragement would have been, wouldn't have been written to the Hebrews church 2,000 years ago unless it was a possibility and maybe even a likelihood. The whole book really is dedicated to the faint-hearted and the weary. This encouraged me because it made me realize there's medicine for that. And the medicine is looking to 
and trusting in Christ. It's still Jesus, like the Sunday school answer. Kids, if you're asked 90% of Sunday school answers, the answer is Jesus. It will always continue to be the answer. Jesus. And you won't have to give a thousand yards there because you're expecting it. Oh, Jesus is yet the answer again, 100% of the time. And realize, just like the others here, the plurals of this passage, this passage is saturated with plurals. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, says, let us lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance. The word looking to Jesus is a plural participle. And the, the, the command, the imperative, consider him, is a plural imperative. Just like you can't run alone, just like you can't lay things aside alone, you can't consider him and look to him alone. That's done right here in community. It's done with God's people. It's done together. It's done as families sitting around the Bible together as there's some us's involved Beholding and looking to and considering. Man, these things are to be done together. There's some sense that you're not even in the race if you're not running with others, if you're not beholding with others, if you're not looking to and considering with others. We need each other to help each other look to Jesus. We need each other to help each other consider him. That's who the church is. Somebody wants to know what your church is about? It's a bunch of people just reminding each other, look, there's Jesus. And oh yeah, the stands are full. Look, Moses. Look, Abraham. Let's look together and fix our eyes on Jesus. Man, that's what the church should be. It's what I want us to be about. It's what we aim for. It's a fitting start to this year that we would be this people. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to see our our um, supper will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 and 2 Corinthians, man, what a talk about a roller coaster. I, I encourage you to read through your Bibles this year if you've never done that before. Because when you read, you, you set out to read more than just a chapter or two, you start to see these sweeping movements and these bigger storylines. And the story for the Corinthian church is the Corinthian church was a soup sandwich. They were a mess. They were as worldly as it comes. They were as distracted. If we want to talk about distracting heavyweights, they, they were like running with, with all kind of heavy stuff hanging off of them. You know, I mean, they're running encumbered. And if they're running at all at times. Yet Paul loved them, man. He loved them. It's just an encouragement to me to see a pastor that loves difficult people so well. But right here, I don't know if it's geographically exactly in the middle of these two, two books, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I don't know where chapter 11 would lay out, but it's kind of in the middle. It's kind of like the nougat, you know? That's Scott's word. I used your word, nougat. Yeah. It's not your word. He used it in a sermon, you know, eternally eternalized that word or something. something. It's the marrow of these two books. Paul takes them to the supper. He takes them to details dealing with the supper. And it seems so fitting on a morning that we're starting out the year together saying, man, let's endeavor to be this people. That we together take some time to say, let's surgically, specifically look to and consider Christ and what he's done for us in the cross. Man, it's the target. It's the bullseye. 
And here it is nearly smack dab in the middle of these two books of a people that are distracted. Paul takes them to this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, in verse 23, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me give you a little bit of instruction before we distribute these elements. This meal is about enjoying Christ as our fixed object, our fixed person. He is who we are looking to as a people. That's what we're saying as we take this meal together. We are looking together, considering Jesus. If you're not doing that this morning, then this meal's not for you. And if you're not on the race, if you know you're not on the race, you might be curious about it, you might have some questions about it, that, trust me, people will be falling over themselves to tell you about how to trust Christ. But until you're doing that, this meal's not for you either. This meal is for those who are in the race, on the race, seeking the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Those who have a cloud of witnesses surrounding them, those who are on the track with others who are looking to, eyes fixed on, considering Jesus. If that's you, then man, I encourage you, let's eat up and drink up. Let's distribute the elements. I was driving to uh, Rockwall on Monday to go see my doctor. I told you I had to come to Jesus meeting with my doctor. And I was thinking about this passage and thinking about those unnecessary weights and uh, thinking, thinking through a lot of what I need to reckon with as a worshiper, as a individual worshiper and as a shepherd of a family and as a pastor of one of the pastors of Cross Point. And I had this thought, I had this thought that, you know, you can preach it and not live it. And you could preach it pretty passionately. You could preach it pretty uh, effectively, maybe, um, convincingly, and not live it. And I shared at the beginning this morning, I felt like the Miss Teen South Carolina just a couple weeks ago. And I feel that way often. Um, the temptation would be, Lord, help me not feel that way and help me do a good job preaching. But what I want to be more serious about than, than doing a good job as a preacher, although I know a lot's at stake there, what I want to be the best, the best at as an individual worshiper is responding to what I hear in the Word. Because I can preach very convincingly and yet never live it. I can preach it and feel like I've lived it just because I preached it when I didn't live it. And the thing I want to encourage you to realize this morning is you can come and go Sunday after Sunday and hear it and never live it. And we've done the hard work in Hebrews so far. We've seen some amazing things about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. He's better than angels, Moses, Joshua, the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He's the supreme, superior high priest. And because of that, it should appropriately, fittingly, consequently impact how we live on Tuesday. 
the what we eat, what we wear, what, how we communicate, who we hang out with, what we say when we're hanging out with people, how we think, how we spend our money. It should impact all those things. If it doesn't, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I just going through the motions? You know the potential's there. The nation of Israel was great at that. And they went into exile as a result of it. Man, I asked this earnest question this morning as we take and eat and drink. Are you willing to ask yourself, are you walking in this or not? You're just hearing it. And if you're just, just hearing it, then this will be a fitting time right now. Say, Lord, please may this day, this ordinary Sunday, and this ordinary 2015 be different for your namesake. Not for your glory, not so you'll feel better about yourself, but because his reputation is at stake. I encourage you to do that. Some real soul searching today as we together fix our eyes on the only fuel as we take and eat. Let's in faith together, trusting him, take and drink. Let's continue in song. A few years ago, Brad and I, I'm trying to remember who else was in on this fad, motorcycle fadorama. I mean, we were head over heels into the motorcycle thing. It's all we could talk about, all we could think about. Brad and I went through, didn't we do that training together over at the parking lot? At, huh? Ace. Was that the name of it? Oh, we aced it. That's right. Both of us did. We aced our test. <laughs> Sign autographs later. It was, um, yeah, it was cool. I mean, motorcycles are cool. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking motorcycles. But we were big time into it then. But one of the things I remember about motorcycle training was turning, like where they're teaching you to turn. You got this uh, hundreds of pounds worth of equipment underneath you. Depending on what you're driving, it could be a lot, lot, where you can't hold it up. And like a turn, like a really sharp turn is really tricky. If you're looking down where the concrete you don't want to hit, you're going to hit it. <clears throat> so they teach you. Lowell, you were in on it too. Yeah, you're still into it. That's cool. That's cool. But <laughs> I was remembering because you're laughing over there. But when... But when you turn, they teach you to look where you want to go. And then you, like, zip through a turn. You're like, wow, I can't believe I did that. The same thing is true for mountain biking. They teach you, don't look at the rock you don't want to hit because you're going to hit it. Look where you want to go, the path that you want to take. What a great fitting example to this sermon this morning. First of all, surprise, you're in the race. <laughs> and second of all, if you're not looking to Jesus, you're not going to continue. You have to be fixed on him, and he'll keep you from the, from the rocks and the concrete, and you'll grow in him and enjoy him as you go. Let's stand, and I'll dismiss this with a benediction. I encourage you to, if you're not part of a small group, excuse me, life group, we're going to get that right in 2015. If you're not part of a life group, I encourage you to do that or to consider visiting some of the life groups. It's just sort of how we go about walking in what we've heard. It's not the only way, but it's really the primary way we do that as a church family, that and families, where shepherds are talking about it within homes. So we don't have a lot of, if you notice, we have a very slim bulletin. We preach and endeavor to walk in what we've heard. It's very lean on purpose. And I encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, to consider that. I'm going to send you off with a...
into 2015, the rest of 2015, with this benediction after this morning. Fittingly, at the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all have a great week.